There's just a few of us who can remember 50 years ago in Oxford. Very, very few. It was a different world. Especially the religious scene in those days. Um, Many churches were full, but to be honest, most of them had rather lost their way. At the end of the 1950s, um, in this country, marked the beginning of a decline in church attendance, which initially didn't look that worrying, but then continued decade after decade for half a century. In those days, there was, in the midst of that sea of church attendance, just a very small group very little good. Are you, gonna, are you able to take down that echo? Um, I, even I can hear it. I'm sure everybody else can. Um, PA people? You're going to be able to do that? I'll keep talking until, it, until the echo dies. There, that sounded a bit better. There was a very small group of people who were there at that time in a sea of other churchgoers. They were called the Evangelicals. Leading the way in that uh, select little band was St Aldate's and uh, St Ebb's churches in the, uh, in the centre of town. And uh, frankly, in those days, they didn't gather great congregations. But the people who came to those churches were ruddy, ruggedly dedicated to their faith. And um, Magdalen Road Church at that time was a small church, but under Gerald Hennegolf had a clear set of evangelical convictions. In the 1950s though, those little evangelical churches were despised. They were considered anti-intellectual, far too rigid. The majority of churchgoers went to sort of relaxed, middle-of-the-road churches. In 50 years, the world, the religious world, the Christian world has completely changed. In those 50 years, actually, the non-evangelicals have substantially withered away. Within the denominations, they still cling on to power, but attendance at those churches has been relentlessly falling and shows no sign of stopping. And that tough, determined little bunch of evangelicals of 50 years ago has actually blossomed into a whole constellation of vibrant churches. You know, some dead churches in its various uh, congregations now, Vaughan was telling me, has a weekly attendance of over a thousand. St Aldate's and St Andrews are uh, not that far behind. Oxford Community Church has grown from being non-existent 50 years ago to um, um, filling a warehouse today. And even little old Magdalen Road Church is growing and blossoming, as those who've been around for a while know. I have to say, though, in the midst of all that excitement of the, of the real, vibrant growth of churches of evangelical conviction, I'm uneasy. I'm happy to see vibrant Bible-believing churches uh, uh, flourishing. I'm delighted to see it, excited to see it. But there are other trends that worry me. Trends that actually 
are displayed to us very clearly in this church in Corinth. It was only a few years before that he wrote this letter we call 1 Corinthians, that the Apostle Paul had planted uh, a church in this vibrant cosmopolitan city. And in Corinth, the church had flourished. It drew people, we've already seen over a number of weeks, from all stratas of society. Rich and poor got converted, Gentiles and Jews. Um, actually, even two successive synagogue leaders of the synagogue got, uh, uh, got converted. And it was in Corinth that the church, the early church, first got one of its big breaks. So people t- uh, stirred up trouble for the, for the church, as they did in, in, in most cities. And Paul was brought before the Roman gov- governor, Gallio. But Gallio refused to use Roman law to suppress or control the church. And that judgment in the city of Corinth set them free. They were now under the protection of Roman law. Elsewhere, churches were being persecuted and uh, oppressed and uh, had no protection from Rome. But here, they could break out of being a despised, persecuted sect and become a formally recognised part of the fabric of society. Gallio had said so. But their growth and respectability didn't lead only to blessing. By the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the church is in a complete mess. Sexual immorality is rife. The church is dominated by a power-hungry middle-class elite. Core doctrines are being questioned and they are in particular squabbling horribly over their favourite leaders. Something in Corinth has gone horribly wrong and it is difficult to escape the conclusion that one of the causes of that was their rise to respectability, their rise to power. Their very success seemed to be undermining them. What a warning to us. I mean, thank God at the moment, the gross extremes of Corinth are not with us in this country. But actually, all Corinth's problems are here amongst evangelical churches, amongst us. Sexual immorality, divisions and lovelessness, and more and more in this ever-widening family which is called evangelical in this country, we find squabbles and fights, Some of the divisions are are just a sad necessity because of uh, real theological issues. But it has to be said that far too many are not over those things at all. They're really fights about who and what style can best establish us 
as respectable members of society. In half a century, that tight, coherent little bunch of despised Bible-believing Christians has grown and blossomed, but has broadened and weakened and has got a growing number of problems amongst us. I had the privilege a few years ago of speaking to someone, a church leader who's well into his 80s now, who has watched this. And I said, from my short perspective, is it really moving in that direction, the evangelical movement? He said, without a doubt, it is. And it was one of his chief worries. We are frighteningly Corinthian. So what's the answer? Well, we've begun, as we've looked at verses 1 to 9 of 1 Corinthians 1, we've got begun to just, just start to lay some foundations for an answer. Do you remember in verses uh, 1 to 3 we found the apostles saying actually you and even I am not so great. Corinthians, it's Christ who is great. It's Christ who you should should worship and adore. Or in verses 4 to to, to 9 we saw him again laying further foundations. He says, you are rich because you know the testimony of Christ. You've got all the gifts given to you by Christ that you need, that you will be kept strong to the end by Christ and God. You should feel solid and firm and secure simply in your relationship with Christ. Then you won't be tempted by all these other things that are washing you around and leading you astray. Enjoy being secure and rich in Christ. But then in verses 10 to 17, he begins to uh, address more specifically some of the specific problems that they have. In particular, this particular problem of division and fights over styles and personalities. We're not going to look at it in any depth. Let's just just see what he says to the church in Oxford. Verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Peter Comont. Another, I follow Vaughan Roberts. Another, I follow Cleverly Ponsonby, Hicksonby and Lazell. And still another, I follow Christ, as he's clearly manifested in Oxford Community Church. Is Christ divided? Was Peter Comont crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Comont? That is what he's saying. What a ridiculous thing. Amongst all these Bible-believing churches to set up personalities as if they were our saviour, as if they um, bore crucifixion for us. It's just pride. It's just a subtle way of, of, of gaining authority and position and a sense of respectability ourselves. As we say, I follow that leader or I follow that one. He's the best one to establish evangelical Christianity as a 
solid part of the fabric of Oxford. It is ridiculous. And then, in verses 18 and onwards, Paul starts to explain a little bit more as to why it is so ridiculous. He does it in a particular way. He says that there are two verdicts that we need to understand to get clarity on what sort of leader to really is really worth following. On what sort of message really makes a church. Before you pass your verdict on me and my colleagues, he says, you must consider carefully the verdict of the world and the verdict of God. The verdict of the world is that the cross is foolishness. Verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, he says. In other words, he's saying, you who are scrabbling for respectability, you who are tasting the intoxicating liquor of now being a powerful force in Corinth, you must remember this. A faithful communicator of the Christian message is always going to be considered a fool by the wider world. Fifty years ago in this city, there was no evangelical who was in the slightest doubt about that. But today, I don't think we are so sure. Now, the voices out there are still calling us fools, led by um, uh, the Oxford Don, Richard Dawkins. (coughs) But it seems to me that Christians increasingly chafe at that. Of course, we've never enjoyed it. But we must accept it if we are to be true believers. Instead, it seems to me, we, we emphasise the things that make us attractive. And that is not bad, up to a point. But in the end, it is a dangerous idol. We are a great community We have wonderful, uplifting times of worship. We have a social action programme that really changes lives. We have deeply impressive preachers. We even have brainy evangelicals who can out-argue Richard Dawkins. Look at us! And ever so subtly we shift into that Corinthian thinking that says if I just find the right leader who has the right nuance, who can package it just right with all the right wisdom and the razzmatazz, then I and my church will be an acceptable, respected part of human society. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no, no. It will never happen to faithful believers. From the beginning of our Christian life to the end, when our friends who do not know Christ find out what we really believe, what will go through their mind is fool. 
idiot. And any church that is worth going to will be considered by those who understand what it stands for outside as fools. It is unavoidable. Absolutely unavoidable. Sometimes we're idiots for the wrong reasons. Let's be be clear of that. But the mark of a person or a church which is faithful to the message of Jesus Christ is always going to be that we are considered fools. No matter how successful, no matter how big, no matter how much positive influence we have in society, no no matter how much money we raise, no matter how clever our great apologists are, we will be considered fools. The Apostle tells us so. And that for a specific reason. The verdict of the world actually stems from the verdict of God. The verdict of God on the world's wisdom. The wisdom of the world, says God, is foolish. God's God decrees personally in his word that human wisdom will be futile. Do you see that in verse 19? For it is written, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's decided it. He's proclaimed it. And more than that, he demonstrates it in the world. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, Corinth had a very visual, obvious reminder just down the road. Corinth was not that far from Athens. Years before, Athens had been the philosophical, intellectual centre of the world and had been buzzing. But by Paul's day, Athens was a dead city, half in ruins and actually now just uh, filled with uh, um, uh, a group of increasingly irrelevant, isolated academics pondering amongst themselves. The power had shifted to Corinth because Corinth was Roman and there was no power but Rome and Corinth was its prophet. God always, always demolishes the high-sounding, pretentious philosophies of men and Paul says you've seen that in Athens as Greek philosophy dies and Rome rises. And he will do it again and again and again. A hundred years ago, Karl Marx was the bright shining light of the, uh, of the philosophers. But communist Russia destroyed the credibility of that. Forty years ago, all the intellectuals were, were excited by, by the social revolution that was beginning in, uh, in Britain in particular, particular, with sexual liberation at its heart. 
There would be new kinds of families, new kinds of relationships, none of the oppression of the past. And today, there is increasing unease about that dream as the family, the conventional family has declined and and generations now have risen with the damage that has resulted in that. As HIV and STDs have taken the, uh, uh, brought misery to, uh, to thousands and taken the edge off sexual liberation. And, and let's be honest, the prophets of sexual liberation still campaign today and still win some battles, but there is a mounting, growing weight of evidence that would discredit them. And I suspect it'll be within my lifetime. That, they, that, that a full-blown 1960s advocate of uh, uh, the new freedoms will be as much a peculiar novelty as a communist is today. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In every generation... In every century, in every culture, God laughs at those self-pretentious philosophers who think they've got the answer and he brings their philosophy down to nothing. God destroys the wisdom of the wise. God, the intelligence of the intelligent God frustrates Actually, God in his wisdom stops people knowing him by their own wisdom. Do you see that in verse 21? Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. He frustrated, frustrates human wisdom generally, but in particular... He frustrates human wisdom that thinks that it can know God simply through its wisdom. This is so, so important for us to grasp. We are not going to argue people into the kingdom of God. Certainly God destroys the wisdom of the wise. And we can work at that too. Certainly God demonstrates the bankruptcy of human wisdom in this world and we can demonstrate it too. But he has ordained that human wisdom will never, ever, on its own, bring people to God. Richard Dawkins uh, proclaims that he has proved but it is overwhelmingly probable that God doesn't exist. Uh, and frankly, his arguments are extremely sloppy and it's entirely appropriate for intelligent uh, people to demonstrate that. But let's remember, no Christian is ever in the history of the world going to be able to stand up and present an argument that ends with the statement, therefore God definitely exists. God has purposely designed his universe so that we cannot do that. It says it here in scripture, doesn't it? The wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. For me, this is, this is, this is the great error of a number of 
Christian creationists. They think that unbiased scientific investigation will lead people to um, an obvious logical belief in God. And I don't think that. I think we can refute the poor arguments of, people, of atheists, like Richard Dawkins. We can show that belief in God is reasonable, but we will never show through science or maths or philosophy or geology that belief in God is necessary. Why? I think God has made his world in that way for a very good reason. Because if philosophers and scientists and mathematicians could uh, simply through careful reasoning prove the existence of God, then philosophers and scientists and mathematicians would have an inside track, wouldn't they? And God loves to invite on absolutely equal terms educated and uneducated, wise and foolish, university student and illiterate. God's verdict is human wisdom is useless, foolish. It will never enable people to find him. This is how God reveals himself, verse 21. In the wisdom of the world, God through his wisdom, the world, sorry, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why, Corinthians then, says Paul, are you so tied up with finding the perfect persuader the perfect experience that somehow draws people in to a relationship with God. The perfect leader who will establish the church as a respectable part of society. It will always be considered foolish, the message of Christianity, because God has decreed it so. Two verdicts then. The world's verdict and God's verdict and one result. The way that God reveals himself says that, uh, said those verses is through Christ crucified. The crucified Christ displays God. The crucified Christ 
um, is the means by which the power of God is applied to our lives. The crucified Christ is the wisdom of God, says the Apostle. A church that proclaims Christ crucified is a church that will see God doing his miraculous power. Not because they are such wonderful persuaders. Not because the music is so great. Not because the community is so wonderful. But because God loves to honour the message of Christ crucified. Verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So don't worry about all those other things, all those other ways in which churches in Oxford and in this country and around the world might vary. There will be good things and bad things about every single one of them. There will be differences in taste and differences in style and in God's wonderful goodness, maybe that means that a broader range of churches can reach a broader range of people. Worry only about one thing. Is the message of the cross being preached? And if it is, you can bet there you will find the power of God. There you will find the wisdom of God. There you will find true transformation. Why? Well, at one level, it's just God's decision, isn't it? That's what Paul says. God's apparently foolish decision. The foolishness of God, verse 25, is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. At one level, that's just what God's chosen to do. But there is much more as well. about why that message of the cross is so central. We will explore that over the coming weeks and months as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians. But let me just suggest a few reasons right now. To the crucifixion of Christ there's something very important about the world. It says that the world will always reject God's messenger. If they crucified Christ, they will certainly reject you. So forget worrying about respectability and be free. Because Christ is with you. God is with you. You do not need anything else. The cross of Christ displays what we can expect from the world. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4 we'll see uh, that they were far too excited about what they could expect now. Paul says, I'm treated as the scum of the earth. Why should you expect anything else? The cross of Christ says something profound as well about our need. You see, we think we just need a little bit of help, a bit more wisdom. We think we just need our hearts to be thrilled by, by um, some, what, some wonder of some sort, something, something wonderful. Jews demand signs, Greeks wisdom, says Paul. And the cross of Christ says, no. We need something far more profound than that. We need God to pay for our sins. All the wisdom in the world, all the titillation in the world is not going to make an ounce of difference to your life if God has not paid for your sins. All you need to do is come to him and ask for the forgiveness that Jesus won on that cross. And you can receive it. You can be assured that he has paid for your sins. That is the power of God. And the cross of Christ as well says something about God. It says that God is not just an authority figure up there. He is not just the all-powerful creator. He is not just the judge to be feared on the last day. He is the one who would do anything to save you. do anything. He would send his only son to save you as he died. This is the God who humbles himself. This is the God who gives himself. This is the God who pays for our transgressions. And once we have him. We need nothing else. Cross of Christ, says Paul. The message of the cross is the power of God. Because the more we understand it, the more we absorb it, the more we see the God who stands behind it, the more we find our lives are changed and all those other things fade away before the God who stands before us in the person of Jesus crucified.
as the evangelical movement grows. And I hope it will continue to grow. It will be massively tempted. And you will be massively tempted to think there are other treasures to grasp, other things to add, brought to you by bright, shiny leaders. Don't give a fig for them. If Christ died for you, that's all you need.